I'm Emily Kwong, host of the new podcast Inheriting from LAist Studios. Join me for an immersive evening about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. June 27th at the Crawford in Pasadena. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. On Inheriting, Bao Trong was born in the U.S., but he longs for Vietnam, a country his father left behind. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. So how does he tell his dad that? Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. Orange County DA Todd Spitzer has called for conversations on systemic racism in the criminal justice system and for ending mass incarceration. We'll hear what he's been doing on both, and he'll tell us what he thinks of L.A. District Attorney George Gascon. Plus, how ready is California to fully reopen its economy by mid-June? We'll find out. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn. It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian school teacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye, inviting you to a taping of my show with my pal, actor, comedian, podcaster, memoirist, Paul Shear. Hey, Paul. That's me. Hey, Jesse. I am so excited to join you to talk about my brand new book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma. We're going to have a great time at the Crawford on June 13th. Come on out. Get tickets now. LAist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for joining us today. The end is nigh of all the pandemic-related closures, that is. Well, at least that's what Governor Gavin Newsom announced yesterday. With the expectation of an abundance of doses coming in from the federal government through the end of this month and into May, we can confidently say by June 15th that we can start to open up as business as usual, subject to ongoing mask wearing and ongoing vigilance. So June 15th, life resumes as normal. Thing is, though, that virus is still out there, so are we ready? Joining us to discuss is Dr. Bob Wachter, professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Doctor, welcome. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So, doctor, uh, what does business as usual mean to you? Well, it means that everything will be open uh, kind of the way we were used to in 2019, but will not be quite as usual uh, given an ongoing mask requirement. And I think our psychology is going to be different. I, I personally can't see walking into a crowded bar, standing shoulder to shoulder with people for a little while. Uh, eventually, we'll all get back to that, but there's going to be you know, we've lived through a lot of the past year, and I think it's going to be a little bit strange and different for all of us as to how normal it feels. But in terms of opening theaters, movie theaters, businesses, stadiums, uh, they're talking about going back to normal. And doctor, you are so right when it comes to certain people's behaviors not going to uh, be the same. I'll just tell you myself, I'm going to wear a mask when I go out to the store, when I go out to the movie theaters, even after we don't need masks anymore. I just like not being next to people's germs. Yeah, I'm not sure how long I'll do that for. I probably will for a while. I have to say this winter has been my healthiest winter in a decade. I almost always get some sort of upper respiratory infection and begin wheezing and didn't have it this winter. So uh, I think we'll all have to see, but there's no question. I mean, the flu rate in the United States this winter, remember we worried about that, the double whammy of the flu and COVID. There was essentially no flu in the United States this year. So there are some, this is a good side effect. And if we can keep our guard up and wash our hands and maybe to some extent wear masks, we'll probably all be healthier. Yeah, I've always wanted to. I felt embarrassed before, but now I've got no excuse. I'm just going to do it. Exactly. I'm going to have to get used to it. Now, you and I <laughs> right. uh, last year talked about what went wrong in May when California started to reopen for business, only to have cases spike again. Uh, now we have the vaccines, of course. Uh, but what else, uh, if anything, doctor, gives you confidence that this summer could be different? 
Well, it's it's ninety nine percent the vaccines. Uh, the the vaccines are really the the game changer here. Uh, what gives me confidence is that these vaccines are miraculous. They are better than we could have uh, logically hoped for. They are safer. Uh, and after some uh, and quite a few initial hiccups in the rollout, both nationally and in California, uh, the last three months have been pretty impressive. Uh, they're rolling out fast. They're getting out there. We now have three vaccines uh, in the mix. And the more we learn about them, the better they they look. They are you know, remarkably effective in preventing cases of COVID. They are essentially 100% effective in, in preventing severe cases and deaths. Once you've been vaccinated, you can say with 100% certainty, I am not going to die of this, which you could not have said before vaccination. And even the, the bad news, which is the variants, at least so far in California, the variants that we're seeing are, uh, are are not the nastiest kinds, not the ones that we're really worried about, the ones that might be resistant to the vaccine. And, and high rates of vaccination will overcome these variants. We've seen that all over the United States, and they're seeing that in the UK, where most of the cases they have are the, the B117, the UK variant, and they are crushing the virus with vaccination. So all signs are pointing in the right direction. The dark clouds are we look at a state like Michigan, uh, which is spiking quite a bit. So uh, it's too early to declare victory. It's too early to spike the football. And the governor in his, uh, in his speech made very clear that we are looking at a world where we open up and get back to normal on June 15th. And there was a very big if. Yeah. And the if is, you know, we, we keep our guard up, we continue to act well, and we continue to get vaccinated. And the big variable here will is no longer going to be vac vaccine supply come uh, come late April, May. It really is going to be people's willingness to take the vaccine. Yes. Yeah, so I was wondering then the, the wisdom or the rationale behind June 15th. Is there a bit of a math equation going on? If X amount of people get vaccinated by X date, uh, then June 15th should be all right. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, it's uh, by the end of May everybody, uh, well, as you know, in California, starting in about two weeks, everybody will be able to get on the list. So yeah. the priority list will go away. That doesn't mean they'll be able to get their vaccine that day. But it means that probably within two, three, four weeks after that, everybody who wants a vaccine will have had one. Now, if you get Pfizer or Moderna, you are not fully vaccinated until six weeks after that date that you get shot one. So remember, Pfizer, you need a second shot in three weeks, uh, Moderna, four weeks. J&J, uh, &J, it's just the single shot. It's two weeks out. So let, let's take the longest period of time. It's Moderna. If you are the last person on the list uh, getting the vaccine, uh, it's probably going to be mid to late May. You get your vaccine. You get your second shot a month later, mid to late June. And two weeks after that second shot, you are fully uh, fully vaccinated. So I think part of the, the that June 15th comes from that calculation. Talking to Dr. Bob Wachter, professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Uh, speaking of that uh, that date, April 15th, uh, when shots will be available to everyone or people 16 and older, how do you think uh, that might go, doctor? Uh, you know, I, I, I would have thought that it would be, if this was January, I would have said chaotically because that's how it felt yeah. in December and January. I think we've gotten better at this and, uh, and, and better at kind of understanding how to do the scheduling, better at getting vaccine to where people are. So it's no longer just the big football and baseball stadiums and the big healthcare systems. We're starting to roll it out in pharmacies and some doctor's offices. And so... And I think people have gotten a little more patient. Look, if you've been waiting 13 months for uh, and praying for a vaccine, and now you might have to wait three weeks, as long as you know you're eligible and there's some list you can get on and you're confident you're going to get it, I think people will be okay with it. So I'm reasonably confident this will go okay, although impatience is normal. <laughs> I mean, the vaccine is so wonderful. Everybody wants it. At, I hope people want it as soon as they can get it. Doctor, I have these conversations with myself all the time. I have the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other, and the angel says, or I should say the devil says, why is this going the way it's going? And then the angel says, we've never done this before. Yes. Yeah. And this is harder than anything we've done in the vaccine world. Uh, you know, the, the analogy we all had was the flu vaccine but it turns out that the flu vaccine is much easier. Single shot, you don't really yeah. need to track very much. You didn't have to sit there and wait 15 minutes to be sure you didn't have a reaction, all that all that kind of stuff. This turned out to be trickier. We underestimated how tricky it was. There wasn't much of a federal plan uh, up until June, uh, January 20th. So 
I, it took us a month or two to get our acts together. But I think, you know, it's humming pretty good now. If you think about what's involved in vaccinating 3 million people a day, you know, take the Coliseum, 100,000, yeah. uh, 30 of them a day filled, all being vaccinated every day. That's pretty damn impressive. You know, doctor, on Friday, this coming Friday, it'll be two weeks out since my second uh, shot. And I am going directly to Koreatown to my grandmother's house to, to see her. I haven't seen her. She's going to turn 99 in two weeks. Oh, my I'm going to see her for the first time in person in a year. So I'm going to I'm going to just rush out of here. But when it comes to life um, like we knew it before, I mean, what do, what do you think people need to keep in mind uh, for, for the, I mean, I know we talked about this a little bit, but I mean, it is going to be an unknown for a lot of us because we all think it's going to be just like it was before, but it, it really isn't, I don't think. It's a weird version of what it was before. First of all, don't hurt her when you hug her. No, I mean, I'm, no she'll hurt, <laughs> oh, believe me. She <laughs> she'll hurt, hurt me you. before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, the, the, the funky part about the, the new normal is going to be that you know, last year we got used to <clears throat> we got used to thinking about people in different categories. You're you're older, so you're at higher risk, or you're in an essential job, so you're at high risk of of, of getting infected. Versus you're older, you're, you're at high risk of getting really sick. Now the world is really parsing into these two big new categories, which is you're vaccinated and you're not. And uh, and the world of people who are fully vaccinated when they're hanging out with other people who are fully vaccinated really does resemble. 2019, uh, you know, it, it, we're, we're all, it doesn't in the same way that you say that yeah. it's going to be weird and you're still going to wear a mask for a while. But in terms of your risk, one question you remember may remember three months ago, we said, well, we know the vaccine protects you really well. We don't know for sure that it protects you from getting it uh, and then spreading it to others. We now know pretty, sh uh, it, it does that really well. So it's going to feel pretty normal with vaccinated people. Unvaccinated Hopefully, people, it's, yeah. a different, it's a different ballpark. I'm my grandmother's favorite grandkid anyway, so I'm worried that of she's going to hug me too hard. That's Dr. Bob Walker, <laughs> professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Doctor, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us. On Imperfect Paradise, a glimpse into the shadow system that's been plaguing public golf courses in Los Angeles. I asked him how do you have the contact information of a broker if you don't use the broker? And how an unlikely crew banded together to keep golf accessible and affordable. I didn't set out to be an activist. I just wanted to help people, but I guess that's what activism is. Subscribe to Imperfect Paradise from LA Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. One event can change a family for generations. I'm Emily Kwong, host of a new podcast from LA Studios called Inheriting. It's about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. Join me for an immersive storytelling event at the Crawford in Pasadena. It's June 27th. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. More take two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm A. Martinez. Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer has only been on the job for a couple of years, but he's looking to run again in 2022. Early this year, as the national conversation has zeroed in on criminal justice reform, Spitzer announced a series of initiatives to combat what he called systemic racism and mass incarceration throughout the system. But just last month, a relative newcomer to Orange County politics, attorney Peter Hardin, said Spitzer's initiatives are not enough, and he launched a campaign to challenge the incumbent DA for a seat. Earlier this week, we talked to Spitzer about his record and his goals. We talked for a while and got into a range of issues, from his efforts to combat recidivism to the impact that Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon, a self-described reformer, has had on prosecutors. But we started with hate crimes, because earlier this week, his office charged a man with a hate crime for throwing rocks at a car driven by a Korean-American woman who had her young son with her. So I asked Spitzer about the case. I've always sent a very strong message against hate. This particular individual uh, threw several rocks. One rock hit uh, a vehicle, a moving vehicle. It deflected. 
the second rock came through the windshield and shattered the windshield of a vehicle driven by a Korean American woman uh, with her child in the car. She uh, was able to get away, pulled over, called 911, and subsequently the defendant was uh, arrested and charged uh, by the police. And then we reviewed the case and we've now charged him uh, with violating her civil rights, a hate crime and also the underlying charge of throwing the rock at her vehicle. Now, I know the suspects that, according to your office, that, quote, Koreans were trying to control him. Uh, do you know if he's suffering from mental illness? Uh, was he evaluated for that? Well, it's, it's very early in the process. Obviously, he was in custody and he'll be evaluated. And that's one of the things I think is so important about my administration is, you know, when I started as a prosecutor 30 years ago, we had a much different way of looking at prosecutions. And since I've been elected DA, we have a recidivism reduction unit, a mental health crisis team. Uh, we look at the whole case. We look at the uh, how the crime occurred, who the victims were, what the motivation was. We also look at the defendant. We have a responsibility to make sure that the defendant's rights are protected. And we want to do what's in the best, best interest of society and protect the public. But we also want to make sure that at the end of the day, the defendant comes out better uh, than when they came into the system. So in this particular case, uh, D.A. Spitzer, you haven't evaluated yet for mental illness, at least not not enough to make a determination. If indeed he is suffering from mental illness, would you walk back the, the hate crime charge? So what we do is, you know, the hate crime charge, it depends. I mean, certainly I have walked back a lot of charges that uh, originally were charged, but then we look at facts of the case, especially you got to remember, I can't go talk to the defendant. He's in custody. That would be a violation of his Sixth Amendment right. He has a right to counsel. He has a right uh, under Miranda to remain silent. And so, you know, there's different rules. I can't just walk in and conduct my own interview. So I have to rely on his defense team and hopefully the Department of Mental Health and the custodial health care team in our Orange County Jail to evaluate him. The reason I ask this uh, is because right now a hate crime against uh, an Asian American or an Asian politically, I mean, I, I know that you're doing your job as a prosecutor, but you're also running for uh, DA of Orange County in 2022. So a, a hate crime charge against an Asian American politically is something that uh, would look advantageous for you. So in a case where you would be able to walk it back, do you ever factor in the political ramifications or something like that? Oh, my God, absolutely not. That would be unethical. Uh, it'd be immoral, quite frankly. Um, our prosecutors understand that their duty is to only file the cr- crimes that we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And we don't always file the crimes that we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. We look at the the whole situation. We make an evaluation on a case-by-case basis. So how does prosecuting incidents such as the one we were talking about, how does that put a put a stop to hate crime? Well, I don't know if there's necessarily a, you know, a, a studied academic correlation between charging people with certain crimes and what the effect is on those who might commit those crimes. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm prosecuting a hardcore recidivist Nazi uh, white supremacist uh, who has a swastika tattooed on his chest who attacked an African-American woman uh, at a bus stop in the city of Fullerton. Um, and uh, told her he was going to drop her baby, his words, not mine, uh, because she was pregnant. And so that man uh, had gone to prison on prior occasions. He's had seven prior convictions for hate crimes. And uh, I'm going after him with the full force and effect of the law, because there's just some people who should never be on our streets. With respect to the deterrent effect, uh, that's that's the really big question. To what extent, when you prosecute these crimes, is there a deterrent effect? Um, I, I gave you the example of the white supremacist with the, twa- the swastika tattooed on his uh, chest and stomach. Uh, do I believe that one, he needs to be isolated? Absolutely. Do I believe that if he is sent to prison for a long time, that sends a message to other skinheads and white supremacists and Nazis in Orange County, that if you engage in hate, uh, you're going to have to deal with Todd Spitzer? Uh, you're damn right I do. And I want that message out there. I want people uh, who think about hurting other people and engaging in hate, uh, wondering who the district attorney is and what's going to happen. 
All right, so you heard him get into it a little bit there. But while Todd Spitzer aims to be tough on crime, he also wants to create space for leniency. Earlier this year, Spitzer took it a step further and spoke out against what he called mass incarceration and pledged to come up with policies to keep people out of jail. Now, this is what he said back in February, quote, We as a society have engaged in systemic mass incarceration. As a prosecutor, I will stop it. We as a society have prosecuted people of color differently. As a prosecutor, I will stop it. So I asked him how he's going to do that. I do not believe that our jails should be the only place and the first place that we look to or turn to when we take somebody into custody. We have to be better than that. We are better than that. And I'm supporting those programs. I have a recidivism reduction unit, which looks at all these cases and determines as quickly as possible if the person has a mental health or some kind of substance abuse issue and we can get to the heart of the matter with their addiction or their illness and be able to get uh, intercede through the appropriate healthcare professionals to get that person help so they don't recidivate. I'm working right now with our County Department of Social Services and our healthcare agency to start a program where the district attorney's office triages the person immediately upon their arrest so that we can determine what, if any, charges might be appropriate, but what should be the game plan for that person because we want to get them out of crisis and get them help. You also mentioned uh, in February that American society has prosecuted people of color differently. How does that change with Todd Spitzer? So I'll give you this example of Dante Epps. Dante Epps is a real person. Uh, Dante Epps is African-American. He uh, left Virginia to come to California. He grew up in a big family and he came out here and he soon found himself in trouble with the law and he found himself uh, using drugs, uh, specifically marijuana. And he had a a huge episode uh, where he went on a a, a significant rage of paranoia, ended up uh, stabbing uh, his, one of his uh, roommates, a a woman. And, um, and so I'm babysitting that case. I don't want to see a young man, African-American man, who came to California to find his dream, uh, completely, you know, go to state prison, which he would uh, on a very serious crime like this, go to state prison, and then come out a completely changed man without the ability to succeed in our society. I assign that case, co-assign that case to myself. I've been appearing at every appearance. I've been talking to his family. I've been talking to his attorney. We've gotten different psych. Uh, psychiatric reports. And we are absolutely trying to figure out the best way for this young man not to ruin his life. I would submit to you that many, many people of color uh, have gotten into the system over the years. And and there hasn't been anybody who really decided to take uh, a concern for their case. And they were they ended up in the system and they were forever changed. I want to make sure a guy like Dante Epps is not forever changed. So the way you've handled that case, how have you imparted that kind of way of handling cases to your deputy DAs? Right. So I talk to them personally. We evaluate them. My managers are part of all these meetings. I have four different courthouses that I'm responsible for. So I have obviously people in management who I've handpicked who agree with my philosophy, understand it and are implementing it, and they are judged, and their performance is judged based upon their consistency with my philosophy. Now, another thing on Spitzer's plate is a controversial DNA database that's collected tens of thousands of samples from crime suspects. It was started by his predecessor, former OC District Attorney Tony Rakakis, almost 15 years ago. That's when Spitzer was a California State Assembly member. It's been controversial for years, and there were calls for Spitzer to shut down the database when he replaced Rakakis in 2018. But he did not shut it down. And earlier this year, a UC Irvine civil rights clinic sued his office over it. Here's what he said about that. You know, it's a bunch of law students in a legal clinic, and they're trying to get experience. So they decided to go after this DNA database, which has been in existence for at least a decade and a half. It is expressly authorized by state law, expressly authorized by state law. It has actually been very, very helpful and useful to solve crime. And I'm really surprised how bad the legal work 
that has been done on that brief. Now, the lawsuit alleges that uh, taxpayer money is being used to coerce individuals to, quote, uh, forfeit their constitutional rights through the unlawful collection of DNA. What do you, what do you say to that? Well, what do I say? Um, we offer in exchange for a diversion program or a dismissal, the exchange of doing some kind of rehabilitation program and a person's DNA uh, in exchange for a dismissal. And about 170,000 individuals have taken us up on that offer. You're right. I didn't start it. Uh, I've only overseen it for the last two years. But uh, 170,000 times, <clears throat> that doesn't make it right if it's wrong, but it certainly uh, lends credibility to the fact it's authorized by law. And every one of those agreements, every one of those agreements has been approved by a judge in open court on the record. Um, so the fact that we're coercing people is ridiculous. Our forms bend over backwards to disclose, to be transparent. We'll make them available to anybody anytime. We're, those are public documents. And each time we have done this, uh, it has been done voluntarily with full knowledge and waivers and with the approval of a court of law. All right, finally, to George Gascon. Throughout our conversation, the L.A. District Attorney loomed large, as did other progressive DAs throughout the country. Gascon was elected last fall and came out of the gate pushing sweeping reforms, such as eliminating enhancements that add extra time to people's sentences. Those moves have gotten Gascon a lot of attention, some positive, some not. Spitzer argues Gascon is soft on crime, and he says that's a problem for everyone. Because of the fact that there's a soft on crime attitude by Mr. Gascon in, in many instances, um, and he doesn't want to file uh, substantial enhancements. Um, you know, homicides are up, shootings are up, um, uh, crime is up. And I think it's hurting our communities of color to disband, for example, the gang unit. I mean, the gang unit is there not just to prosecute gang members, but it's to protect the community in which people live. How does or how has what he has done in his short time as DA of L.A. affected what you do in Orange County? When L.A. County is perceived as soft on crime, criminals believe they are empowered to commit crime at a great at a much higher rate. And so there's a huge effect, not only because there's ramifications from these policies. But what happens is then people think, okay, we did it in Los Angeles. We did it in San Francisco. Now let's take this hugely failed social experiment, which is ruining our communities, ruining our commerce. Walgreens has closed all 10 of its stores in the city of San Francisco because shoplifting isn't being prosecuted. So when seniors can't get their, their prescriptions because they have no marketplace to go to, this has a direct and utter effect on all of us uh, in this region. So is, is George Gascon making your job tougher as Orange County's district attorney? Well, what George Gascon's done and what Peter Harden done is, is they've done a huge favor. And, that, and Peter Harden is who you'll be running against in 2022. Well, maybe if he makes it to the starting line, uh, we can talk about that. But, um, uh, you know, these two individuals, I mean, not Peter, because he certainly doesn't have enough experience to run for you. We can talk about that. But Mr. Gascon and Chesa Bowden and Dinah Becton in Contra Costa County and Len Krasner in Philadelphia, um, they, they've made my job uh, uh, easier. Prosecutors have been generally below the radar. If people feel safe, generally people don't even know who their district attorney is. As a result of what Mr. Gascon has done, my name identification in this county is at 85%. And that's because I am now seen as a central figure to keep our county safe when for the most part, people wouldn't even know I exist. So Mr. Gascon's actually done a big favor to me. So in 2022, regardless of who you'll be running against, uh, will you almost be running against George Gascon, comparing yourself to George Gascon in Los Angeles? I'm not running against Mr. Gascon. I'm running against whoever decides to put their name on the ballot. At this point, even though I don't think he'll make it to even register, uh, but Mr. Harden has said he wants to run. It's a free country. I welcome him. And I think the dialogue is going to be very healthy for our county. But what I'll tell you is, is that he is so much uh, a, a George Gascon clone and wannabe that, of course, I have to show what Mr. Gascon has done to L.A. because Mr. Harding will do the same thing. 
Now, one more thing. Uh, for years, you supported tough-on-crime laws that uh, locked up mostly minority men for a long time, and now you're That's talking not about true. reform. That's just not well, true. Well, you've been a, no, you've been a tough-on-crime kind of DA since since you were elected. That, that, what is I mean, that? Are you what, denying that? You made a causal connection that I completely disagree. But well, you, so if, if you're different... Okay, go ahead. No, no, no. I just think that... You're pre- I want to challenge the premise. I'm more than happy to answer any question. But I have not supported crimes that have targeted people of color because you're talking more like a progressive now than you did before i don't agree i just don't think you've ever interviewed me and i don't think you know me well um i was a high school english teacher i grew up in the inner city i've been working on uh progressive agendas for decades i was the first person to build a homeless shelter in orange county the first person to agree to site and build a mental health and wellness center in orange county but before this year, have you ever mentioned systemic mass incarceration? Have you ever mentioned that uh, American society has prosecuted people of color differently? Have you ever mentioned those things before? I mention those things all the time. I've only been the district attorney for two years. And so now as a DA, I'm part of a national conversation. I mean, as you well know, you're interested in even talking to me or Frank Stoltz uh, talking to me or commenting on this race is because there's a national movement to change prosecutors in this country. I don't think I've ever been on your show. And I've been an elected official in this county for 30 years. And that's probably because I'm front and center on a major and national and important conversation. And I just think now people are interested in me because, uh, you know, Mr. Harden's come forward and he's a Gascon clone. People are interested because you've said things that you haven't said before. You haven't said that America has engaged in systemic mass incarceration. You haven't said that... uh, America has prosecuted people of color differently. You haven't said that before. You said that in February, so that's why people are paying attention. They're wondering, okay, is this the new Todd Spitzer? Well, first of all, those statements were clearly made long before I even know Mr. Hardin was even on the radar. If you saw my letter or my statement uh, when I put it out in my press release, I encouraged my 57 other prosecutors in this state to come together and have a conversation about these important issues. I'm trying to lead a conversation that is important and long overdue. And I cannot stand the fact that Chesa Bowden and Dinah Becton and George Gascon are on one side of the equation and the other prosecutors in the state are on the other side of the uh, equation. And all we're doing is fueling additional dissension at a time when America should be coming together. We shouldn't be looking and concentrating on all the things that are different about us we should be we should be figuring out how to live peacefully together and we should end all this nonsense that is dividing our country. But can you hear how someone that say has been someone that supports George Gascon can say, oh, now Todd Spitzer is talking about these things. Where was that in 2018? What George said was when he ran, he pulled a, he, he he did a bait and switch. He said he was going to support certain reforms that I think all of us could support. And then he went away and now he's doing some horrible things, which is causing me to go up to his county and trying to get back some of my cases. So I, I, I don't know what the people who support Jazz, George Gascon are thinking, but I can tell you this, they are extremely misguided in some of their thought. They're very thoughtful and provocative in other parts of their thought. But my point is, why are we always arguing? Why don't we sit down and do this together? That's Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer. Uh, District Attorney, thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. All right, now to talk about my interview with Spitzer, we have KPCC's criminal justice correspondent, Frank Stoltz, on the line. Frank, uh, Spitzer brought up L.A. District Attorney George Gascon quite a bit in our chat. Uh, You've done a lot of reporting on him. Uh, What do you think of the comparisons and contrast between his office and that of Todd Spitzer's? Well, A, you'd think that he's actually running against George Gascon the way he was talking, sharply criticizing uh, the L.A. D.A. on a range of policies, and calling his opponent, Peter Hardin, you know, a wannabe clone of Gascon. Uh, and so uh, he's painting himself as, as somebody who's, who's, it's interesting, who's going to be a reformer, but not the reformer uh, that George Gascon is. Yeah. And, you know, he also mentioned how um, the job that Gascon is doing so far in Los Angeles, how it makes his job easier. What, what do you think he was was going for when he was saying that it makes his job easier, everything that George Gascon is attempting to do in L.A.? Well, it's easy for him to to sell himself as uh, somebody who's fighting crime 
uh, better than these progressive prosecutors. And he didn't just talk about Gascon. He talked about the San Francisco DA. He talked about the Philadelphia DA, you know, as this this cadre of reformers uh, that that are increasing crime. And, you know, that's something we should point out. You know, he talked about the rising crime rate in Los Angeles uh, and directly uh, uh, connected it to Gascon. Well, the crime rate uh, has been going up everywhere and for for over a year. So uh, uh, he also used another uh, tactic that you, you've heard for decades uh, from people who want to be tough in the criminal justice system, and that is repeatedly bringing up the, the worst case uh, scenarios. You know, the, the Nazi who, you know, was going to attack the pregnant woman. This is what we've seen over and over again with criminal justice is people um, you know, painting these these horrible scenarios and using them as justification for the tough on crime policies. But then again, A, I don't get it. He turns around and says that he's also a reformer. Frank, when I asked him about what specifically he's doing to combat systemic racism and mass incarceration, he brought up a specific case that he assigned himself, one that he says he's sitting on to see how it plays out first before being as aggressive as maybe he could be in, in prosecuting it. Um, how do you think that the way he's handling that specific case, or at least the way he says he's handling it, is something that he is imparting to his deputy district attorneys. He says he has conversations with them all the time, but how often sometimes does uh, that message not get uh, to where it's intended to be? Yeah, you can pick any kind of one case and say, well, you know, this is happening across the office. We don't know that. Uh, We don't have statistics that would indicate that one way or the other. It is interesting that he's uh, actually assigned him, say, himself to this case uh, to co-prosecute it and that he's trying to, you know, divert this uh, young man from prison. You know, I think we should point out um, we are in the midst of this giant discussion about criminal justice reform. Uh, and, you know, some could call uh, Todd Spitzer as a Johnny come lately uh, and maybe not even an interested in reform. Uh, but that might be unfair. Uh, you know, prosecutors across the country are rethinking, you know, how to approach uh, criminal justice. Uh, Todd Spitzer says he is too. And I guess we'll we'll see if he really is uh, as he runs for re-election. Now, Frank, you've been following the ups and downs of the criminal justice system here in L.A. and Orange County for years. What is the one issue there that maybe you think really needs to be dealt with? And has Todd Spitzer been on the right track? We've talked about criminal justice reform, but there is another big issue uh, in Orange County, and that is this UC Irvine lawsuit uh, that says uh, the collection of DNA and the keeping of a database by the DA's office has violated people's constitutional rights. Um, you know, his response to this was was interesting. He said, oh, this is a lawsuit by just a bunch of students at UC Irvine in a legal clinic just practicing their studies. He went on to say, uh, you know, that 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 this issue of and really this is the issue, you know, coercing people allegedly into uh, giving up their D.A. in exchange for a lighter sentence. He says it was all approved by a judge, you know, that the forms that they signed were transparent. It was all voluntary. Uh, But this is an issue that a lot of people have raised concerns about, you know, exchanging D.N.A. for lower sentences. That's KPCC's Frank Stoltz. Frank, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. All right, coming up next on Take Two, rooting out extremists from the military. That's up next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. On inheriting. To Tuan Trong, his home country is a lost country. What's keeping you from going back to Vietnam? The communists. Uh, I, 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 can't, I can't stand to see them. But his son Bao longs to live there, the very country Tuan fled. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. 
After the January 6th Capitol insurrection, the Pentagon ordered all service branches to conduct stand-downs. Those are meetings with the troops to discuss extremism in the armed forces. In recent weeks, there's been a rush to complete the stand-downs, but as Steve Walsh reports for the American Homefront Project, some observers say the military must do more to root out extremists in the ranks. First Lieutenant Madeline Hoffman remembers watching the January 6th events at the Capitol on TV. Yeah, that was tough as a service member to see. I take that oath very seriously, and I want to make sure that our Marines understand that type of activity like, is directly in contrast to that oath. Hoffman leads a Marine Infantry Logistics Unit at 29 Palms. We initially talked just before she conducted the required stand-down on extremism. We were pushed this a week ago. Um, all the, the source material specifically for the extremism stand-down um, so I've been taking the last week to really educate myself and be prepared to to give this training. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin gave all branches of the military 60 days to conduct stand-downs. Rather than having top commanders fill large lecture halls, the Marines pushed the task down to small unit commanders. It's Hoffman's first real training on the topic. Specifically, extremism hasn't been a major training point. Experts who follow the military's checkered history with tracking extremism aren't surprised that leaders on the ground haven't been given the tools to look for it in the ranks. Heidi Byrick is co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. I mean, there is a lot that needs to be done to fix this problem in the military. They need to make sure that anybody who's in a position to report this stuff is doing so, that that information is captured. Their own investigators haven't seemed clear uh, in hearings earlier in 2020 on what the rules are. Byrick is concerned that if the stand-down isn't backed up with tangible changes, it will send the wrong message to rank-and-file members of the military. I think of the stand-down as being a good wake-up call to everyone, and hopefully there'll be serious conversations in every branch and every level about these issues. But, I mean, that can only be perceived as one tiny piece of an overhaul and a massive change in the way the military is managed. She says investigators in each branch need to work together. They still don't have a database of extremist tattoos and symbols. They are still working on a policy to monitor social media for extremist activity, often relying on the FBI. The training, I thought, actually went really well. After the stand-down, First Lieutenant Hoffman says they went longer than she expected, mostly because of the number of questions. One thing that came up a lot is that technically Marines are allowed to belong to extremist groups as long as they aren't active members. You walk a very fine line moving from active to passive membership. So it's something as simple as sharing an article from an extremist organization on your Facebook page is grounds to move from passive to active membership. Two Marines under Hoffman's command say the military's apolitical reputation has been under siege for a while. The stand-downs were a chance to right this ship, says Lance Corporal Alan Huff. If you can receive this knowledge about this class and be told that it's a relevant issue and still somehow look away from it, then that's kind of a, a personal issue. Marine Corporal David Dorsey says he found the stand-downs informative. He hasn't encountered people in extremist groups, but as an African-American, he's seen bigotry and racial stereotypes among his fellow Marines. It's not going to be a quick turnaround. Um, usually nothing ever is when you're trying to change, you know, a wide range of people. Um, do we work on trying to fix it? Yes, but it's, it's a slow going thing. It's not something that's going to change immediately. The Pentagon did not compile data on the extremist activity that may have been revealed during these closed door sessions, preferring to let troops speak off the record. Next step making sure troops feel comfortable saying something when they see it. In San Diego, I'm Steve Walsh. All right, coming up, did Godzilla and or King Kong save the world? Or actually, more important... Did they save the box office? Did they start to save Hollywood? We'll find out when we go on the lot. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm A. Martinez. Ray Fisher, the actor who played Cyborg, opens up about his experience on the set of Justice League. Plus, how did Godzilla versus Kong fare at the box office and who won the fight? I'll never tell. Let's go on the lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Joining us, as always, is Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor for Film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, welcome back. Hi, A. All right, so let's start today with The Hollywood Reporter's recent interview with actor Ray Fisher, in which uh, he opens up about about alleged racist and inappropriate conduct on the set of Justice League. Not the Zack Snyder cut necessarily, but it's the Joss Whedon cut. So walk us through what uh, Fisher shared and what was happening behind the scenes. Right. Well, you may remember last summer, Ray Fisher fired off a tweet accusing Joss Whedon, who, as you say, took over uh, directing Justice League from Zack Snyder, of, quote, gross, abusive, unprofessional, and completely unacceptable conduct on the film. In a piece in the magazine this week uh, by my colleague Kim Masters, we hear with more specificity what Fisher was alluding to, uh, as well as some behind the scenes about the multiple investigations Warner Brothers launched in response When Whedon took over the film after Snyder stepped away, he made dramatic changes to the script, including taking out a lot of the backstory for Ray Fisher's character, Cyborg, and lightening the tone. When Fisher, who's black, expressed some concerns about representation issues he had with those changes, he says Whedon was dismissive, and later he says so was Jeff Johns, the the DC executive who's overseeing the film. According to the story, Gal Gadot also had concerns with how Whedon was changing her character, Wonder Woman, in this new iteration. Um, But in response to Fisher's concerns, Warner Brothers launched an investigation, initially an internal one by the HR department, which Fisher did not believe would be impartial, and subsequently uh, multiple external investigations. Yeah, there seemed to be a lot going on uh, as they were making that movie. Uh, So how did Warner Media respond to the allegations, and did Fisher mention how he feels about how everything was handled? Well, Catherine Forrest, who's a a former federal judge who conducted the Warner Media probe, uh, told THR in a statement um, that in interviews with more than 80 witnesses, she found, quote, no credible support for claims of racial animus or racial, quote, insensitivity. Um, And a Warner Media spokesperson noted that the company, quote, made extraordinary effort to accommodate Mr. Fisher's concerns about the investigation and to ensure its fullness and fairness. Um, Fisher uh, says in our piece, quote, I don't believe some of these people are fit for positions of leadership. I don't want them excommunicated from Hollywood, but I don't think they should be in charge of the hiring and firing of other people. Yeah, Fisher uh, also said in that article that whenever he would reach out to people, it was a roll of the dice, 50-50 really, Rebecca, if he ever got a response. And when he got a response, it seemed like it was just a lot of talk. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, you know, some of what you hear described is kind of a I think a a standard back and forth between talent and filmmakers and some of it veers into a territory where it sounds like people were being really dismissive of this actor's concerns. Now, uh, former employees for award-winning producer Scott Rudin are also speaking out on the alleged abusive behavior by Rudin. So what did ex-staffers say about him? This is a story by my colleague Tatiana Siegel, which quotes uh, on the record multiple former Rudin staffers. Among the things they allege in the piece that he's done are 
broken a computer monitor over an assistant's hands, uh, requiring medical attention, um, throwing a potato at someone's head, and in general using a lot of abusive language to people who work for him. Now, Rudin's a producer who's been really celebrated for his taste and his ability to get challenging projects made. He's behind movies like The Social Network, Lady Bird, Fences, No Country for Old Men. It's kind of a, an a Oscar season stalwart. And it seems because of his track record, people either look the other way uh, when this fierce temper allegedly showed um, or they just put up with it in order to get to be in business with him. And yeah, Rudin, I think, is the only producer to win an Emmy, an Oscar, a Grammy. I mean, he's he's pretty much done it all. Um, yeah, and a Tony. Yeah, and a Tony. There you go. I, and unfortunately, not the first time we're hearing about his alleged abusive behavior. Right? I mean, has anything ever been done? Well, the interesting thing is a lot of Rudin's sort of fiery temperament has been chronicled, even celebrated uh, in profiles of him over the years. There was a, a 2010 profile in The Reporter that dubbed him, quote, the most feared man in town uh, and sort of interspersed examples of him being charming with examples of him doing things that are intimidating, cruel. There was also a 2005 Wall Street Journal profile of Rudin with the headline Boss Zilla. Uh, and in that piece, Rudin himself said the number of assistants he had burned through in the previous five years was 119. So th oh. this is not a secret that he had, um, shall we say, some management challenges. But I think the climate in Hollywood is changing and what people are willing to put up with is changing. Yeah. Fe most feared man in Hollywood. It used to be, I guess, something that people were proud of maybe maybe people still are proud of that title if someone has it yeah um rebecca last week we talked about godzilla versus kong's expected big box office opening us uh, so how did those two monsters do Pretty great. Uh, 48, <laughs> pretty great. 48.1 million uh, opening at the domestic box office. By far a pandemic best. Uh, provided a, a huge jolt of confidence for the theatrical business, which needed it. You know, um, Rebecca, you know how last week we talked about how I might be tempted to go see Godzilla versus Kong in a theater mm -hmm. uh, to see if I was going to be one of those box office uh, numbers, right? I, I went to my wife on Friday after the show, and I walked into the room, and I, I asked her that. Hey, want to go see Godzilla versus Kong in the, in the theater this weekend? Um, have you ever said a sentence where every word in that sentence, Rebecca, has a period next to it? <laughs> So this is the Say six more. word. Yeah, this is the six <laughs> words she said to me. What is wrong with your brain? We did not <laughs> so, go. So you didn't. So you watched it at home this week. I watched it at home. the The screen mm -hmm. was not very big, but you know, oh well. I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, it was on HBO Max, <laughs> and a lot of people like you watched it there as well. Which you know, it kind of. This follows the pattern of every Warner movie in 2021, which is being released this way at the same time in theaters as it is on HBO Max. Historically, the assumption has been that that means a movie won't perform well at the box office. In this case, which may be singular, that hasn't been true. I did the uh, smart aleck husband response. I said, well, you married this brain. <laughs> <laughs> that that didn't go over well. Let's just say I, I had a sandwich. Wow, I had a sandwich. Deeper and deeper. Yeah, I had a I had a sandwich that I made for myself for dinner that night. So. Mm -hmm, All right, mm -hmm. uh, Rebecca Keegan, a senior editor for film for the Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, as always, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. The reason why it was a bad thing that I only made a sandwich, that I only had a sandwich that I made, my wife is a Le Cordon Bleu graduate. So she can turn anything into something fabulous, and I had to eat my own disgusting creation on Friday night. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. <laughs>